1993. A father is meandering through the grocery store accompanied by a tottering, party-sized bag of tortilla chips with a pair of bright blue eyes peeking over the top trying to see where she was going. Apparently, I had asked Gary if I could help carry some groceries. And when I'd refused all the heavier items he tried to hand me, we compromised on a bag of chips as tall as I was. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Welcome. This is Sharon Smith, and welcome once again to Iambic Poetry Podcast. I am with the poet, performer, carnival artist, um, author, um, just just dancer. I mean, they got a list. And a good friend of mine, I like to give y'all the barrier classic herself. I mean, themselves co-creation thank you so much John that is a very well-rounded introduction um little did I know I did all of those things (laughs) um I'm really stoked here I have known you for quite a while I've gotten to watch you fall head over heels over tea kettle for poetry and it's been absolutely lovely to see how your podcast is growing. So thank you for welcoming me into your art. Thank you. Thank you. Now, you, you've done, you're going to be doing the, um, you're going to be a feature on the next, com- up, the upcoming show of um, Sacramento Poetry Center. They call, social, they call Socially Distanced Verse. So it's a Zoom show. But yeah. I wanted to talk to you because, well, one, you got a list. Mm-hmm. And I've also heard some of the podcasts you've done and stuff. But I also just want to, we, we haven't talked for a little bit and stuff. And yeah. I just wanted to get to know more about you. Well, from when we met to even when we went out to even when... It's, it's a list. It's a list of stuff. Oh, you want to get into all those stories no, no, on air? No, not all of them. We're just going to give them little bits and pieces. Nobody's going to, you know, they're not going to pay no dang attention. But no. you want to start? <laughs> well, let's start with this. So, t- so tell me what is co-creation? Ooh, good question. What is co-creation? Uh, I am co-creation. Mm. Hello. I am your second-generation sex educator for the 21st century, among my many other titles on my list. Um, I, am, I am an educator. I am also a speaker and a performer and, and recently an author. In March of 2019, I released my first book called This Heart Holds Many, and it is the first long-form written on non-monogamy, specifically non-monogamous families, from the child's perspective. I told my family story um, in 
a really cool formal way that now people I do not know are recommending to other people I do not know. And it's wonderful. Um, so that is a lot of where my focus has been uh, pre-quarantine. And then I was getting into more specific child education to help round out my brand. I've done sex ed for a long time. I've done performing for a long time. But I wanted to figure out like, what does legitimacy mean in a world that needs media that is credible? So I've been on my, on my journey doing uh, more formal education of late. And so I'm really excited to sit here and talk to you today about art and making art um, because it's a, a part of my body and my soul that um, was being exercised in different ways, writing a, a long book and going on tour and doing that one project for so long that it's been really interesting to, to see how these other parts of myself are flourishing again after that experience. So, so, let's, so let's start off with um, talking about your book, your first book, um, The Heart That Holds Many. That this Heart Holds, holds many. many. So this is, as, as you pointed out, this is not only your, your story, but it's also your story as a poly kid and i've i've listened to a few of the i've listened to a few of the um podcasts that you're on touch of flavor um pollyanna and i i got i got a few questions on few, uh, i i know the answer to but here's a few questions so one uh -huh. of the questions is um parent on deck yeah explain to my 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 listening group my group what yes. is Parent on Deck? Absolutely. So <laughs> Parent on Deck is pretty much what every parent wishes they had all the time. Um, it is, so when you have multiple parents, and remember that two is still a multiple, right? So if you've got multiple parents, you generally need to make consensus about who's doing the focused child care at any one particular time, you know, like, Children unattended to themselves in ways that we can't control can cause more chaos than we know how to handle in that moment. So it's helpful for both the child and the other adult to know who's the adult on deck. And also, particularly as your children are growing up, the on deck part means that you might not need to be supervising every activity they do, but they need to know where you are so that they know when to call on you when they need help. And that is a really useful, I've watched, I've watched like struggling new, you know, uh, parent groups. So if they're polyamorous or not, they're just raising their kids together. And I've dropped this little thing, this little nugget that's so second nature to me. And I've just like watched them evolve and blossom before my eyes and be like, we didn't know we could. And I'm like, yeah, you're allowed to have boundaries. You're allowed to take time you know, and schedule your time a little bit, or even just like have that dynamics so that when, because you know that, that meme, like I need an adult, right? Like you can do that. And, and yeah, but I found that very helpful. Not only I, I was a kid and found it helpful and now I'm finding it helpful. Just realized, okay. To everyone who doesn't know, Coles mm -hmm. and was brought up in a polyamorous group. Meaning that it wasn't that prepared for just monogamous with one person. They had several other people. So 
to other people, this may seem a little bit uh, distance from their minds and stuff. But yes, there are other group. There are families that are not in a monogamous relationship. That's called non-monogamous. Yeah, it's called polyamory. Is one of them. Yeah, um, thank you. you know. <laughs> so I'm that is a good. Over here at the end of my pendulum, like assuming everybody knows what I'm talking about. So thank I, you, Sharon, for helping be the educator right now. Um, <laughs> I yes. just had to remind people that it's like, it's like, wait a minute, no one knows what this is a poetry. What's like, what's it got to do with poetry? It's like, well, hey, though. Like, so <laughs> the other thing, though, is that the, that non monogamy and like the tools and communication styles and dynamics that you end up using are really applicable to any grouping of people who care about each other. Which, especially during this time, we have to be, you know, connecting and, and we have to be both connecting and listening to each other and listening to each other's needs. Um, so both like in this like surviving through a pandemic piece, but also, also how this relates back to poetry is we're talking empathetic, open, honest communication as self-aware as you can be while looking while while looking to harbor like feelings of like multiplicitous love if that doesn't sound poetic like i don't know what does like to me there's always been a lot of poetry in how people relate to their non-monogamy because you get a lot of opportunity for you know romance and joy and connectivity and communication and community and i've seen so much of that um both in creating poetry but in poetry community right i feel what you're saying yeah it, it is a it it is a tribal but also a communitive base that we were we got what we got and just like a lot of groups this is a this is a community that even if they have their own little sanctions <laughs> but but as I was saying, you are you. Not only are you a poly kid, and you're they. You've been asked as a poly expert, but you're also a sex educator. Tell us a little about that. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, so I remember this moment when I. This is like a poly kid moment where I was writing my book and talking to my mom, consulting with my mom. My mom was like, baby, got to remember that not all polyamorous families are sex positive. And I was like, what, what, what? I don't. And so I, I you know, they're not exactly the same thing. Um, but I also grew up in a very sex positive household and identify as a sex positive individual. And that means that sex is not inherently a bad thing. Sex is a powerful thing to be respected, revered and explored, hopefully, with your own autonomy um, and decisions on when and how to do that. And in that framing and living your life in that way and teaching that to your children with, you know, harm reduction in place, then sex can be a positive thing that you can share with your peers at appropriate levels and intergenerationally at appropriate levels. And sex positivity, like, there are a lot of different ways that that can show up, too. One that I did not expect is when my grandmother um, was really looking to try and connect with me. 
chief, like, <laughs> uh, just a couple of years ago, shortly before she passed, she started telling me her dirty jokes that she knew. And these are dirty jokes from, like, the 50s. And I was scandalized because I was like, <gasps> you know, it was, it was a taste of my own medicine. It reminded me that, you know, it, it worked. All of this, like, sex positivity I'd been living out in my life finally got to the point that my grandmother could share her dirty jokes. And just for everyone who is listening and going, what is sex positivity? Code just gave you a good clarification of that. So if you need to rewind this, you may want to hear that again. But yes, there is sex positivity. That's in kink, BDSM. It's in um, Polly Emerson, even gay relationships. And lesbian relationships. Trans relationships. relationships. All relationships. Everything has a relationship. Mm-hmm. So if you need to rewind this again and listen to that again, you can listen to what sex positivity is. But it's mostly, it's all love. It is. And as they're talking about, there's love that needs to go around. So there's one thing for you. So actually, there's two things you just hit. You just heard they talking about polyamorous and sex positivity. Now, here's nothing to knock your mind out. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about your carnival, your carny arts. Ooh, okay, so this is the thing. No one has ever described me that way before, Sharon. Like, I, you're always, you're always making me blush in different ways that I'm not expecting. Well, I'm gonna have more to blush on because <laughs> I, I, we, we hung out, so <laughs> they'll, they'll find um, out. <laughs> so, okay, um, I have always been an artistic kid. I think I'm gonna touch on like the acting and the like circus carnival in the same in the same vein so i've been i got bit by the acting bug when i was really young um and i went into like the industry side of it almost first um so i did a lot of auditioning and learning what it meant to be a performer both in like the business side and then in the 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 education side of self and so I had been doing community theater when I was younger. I started out, one of the first things I did was this kids theater troupe that was run by Ginny Tyler, who was one of the original Mouseketeers and worked with Walt Disney nice. way back in the day. Um, so we were getting training from like somebody who got training by, you know, back in like the vaudeville that was coming to television days. Um, and that was one of the most foundational, wonderful things that I got to experience then. And so it really cemented for me, uh, age, you know, and what it means that it, it doesn't even have to be like an, an acting play, which I love, I love acting in a play, but it can be, you know, a stage at a mall with like a bunch of tweens you don't know in a town that you barely go to because they want someone to perform for them. Um, and so that, those experiences really cemented being pretty young. Um, by the time I was a teenager, I was looking to get scouted to Los Angeles. Uh, I really wanted to be a Disney brat. <laughs> like that was one of my deepest goals in life. And, um, I went down there. I lived with my manager. Don't recommend doing that. And I got a lot of more training under my belt. I wound up getting one guest starring spot 
on a Disney Channel show at the time called Phil of the Future. Nice. And um, that I remember that like I I was it was a I was the one who was gonna like beat the odds. I look older, and that's not what they want in LA when you're young. I I you know like I I had a lot of things that were quote unquote not going for me. Um, and I was gaining a whole complex about it. And then I got on this show and I got to, I, I also, as a non-binary kid, I'm really proud of the fact that that audition process, the, the character role is this like really, um, athletic, like masculine, like turned up to 11 caricature. And so they auditioned all of these girls, quote unquote, right? And then my callback was the next day and they were auditioning all of these boys, quote unquote, and told them to dress up in female gym gear. So I got to go to my callback and watch all these boys in drag, like going into this audition. And then I beat all of them. Um, (laughs) Right. So just a quick aside, non-binary is not identifying gender binary. Of I was going to explain that after you, okay. but go, okay. no, go. Male, female, masculine, feminine. Um, I, I exist somewhere in between or off of that axis. And I can talk about that a lot more, but that, I think that's a cool example because I beat out everybody beyond gender for that role. And I did it and I had a great time. And then I was like, yep, I'm tired of selling myself. I want to go home. And I was just tired of not being supported and still having to like, beat out everybody to just do the acting I wanted to do. So I came home and I wound up doing, and, and I actually wound up finding uh, poetry and then, but we're focused, we're focusing on circus. I'm, I'll get there. I found poetry um, and I started doing a lot more physical movement. So when I was a teenager and I'd come back from Los Angeles, I got into flow arts which are kind of like a counterpoint to juggling. You think of things like staff spinning, hula hooping, rope dart, Diablo. These are different things that flow. You might hold on to the object or spin it around yourself. Poi spinning, poi are balls, um, like weighted balls on the end of a string that are attached to your fingers or that you hold. And you have two of them and you spin them independently of each other. Um, it is traditional Maori to New Zealand, indigenous to New Zealand art form that is done in kapahaka ceremony, which is dance and song and poi together to tell story. So it has been adopted into flow arts, and I have been spinning poi since 2006. Um, so it really became an, a form of expression for me, you know? Um, I went to this one festival called Mad Skills in Vancouver, BC, and they identified themselves as a ground level circus arts festival. So they did not distinct, they, sometimes there, there can be a bit of a culture clash between the jugglers and the flow artists. And as you know, people got to be divisive. I don't know why. <laughs> and, and so this festival was specifically about bringing together those communities and they held it at the circuit center, at circuit quest in Vancouver. And so all of these kids from the circus camp were watching us do this festival and then they wanted to get in on it. And so we had the jugglers and the, the flow artists and the literal like 
like kids, you know, the teens and children from the circus center all coming together to do like this flow jam for five days. It's one of my favorite events on the planet. And there, I really got to see anything and everything and realize that you can't, like the world is just waiting to be balanced and manipulated and moved and rolled. And, and I, I kind of, I like opened my mind to more of it. Um, I took a bit of a pause on performance as I started to like get myself established in the Bay Area. But then I got to go to the Circus Center here in San Francisco. And um, I wound up like I, I wasn't clicking with most anything there. I was kind of feeling, you know, old and out of shape and like, am I going to be able to even do this? And then I found the sear wheel. C-Y-R. Uh, sear wheel is, as far as I know, it's French in its origin and it's very new. Only as of about 2005, I think. Um, and so, so sear wheel is a big steel ring that you should be able to stand inside. And you stand inside it and you spin around and you're caught in your own centrifugal like sphere. Um, it's very, very fun. It's very hard. And um, I, I asked my instructor, like, does anybody get hurt doing this? And he was like, nah. And he's, a, he practices yoga a lot. And so I don't think he had the right metric because I get on this thing. I do a hard land and I managed to twist my ankle so badly. I pull a little piece of my bone off. So, and, and so I am laid up in love with this new instrument. Can't use it because I screwed up my foot. And so in my healing process, I started to look at it because I couldn't ride it. You know, I couldn't get inside it, but I could still push it. And the amazing thing about a sear wheel is if you have enough space, it will roll on itself like a dime, but in these beautiful, intricate patterns. And so if you like make sure not to get hit, you can have your own dance with the sear wheel. Um, and so I, I started calling, some people call it paddling when you're moving it around more with your hands and you're staying still. So I call it paddle dancing. And um, I, I've only been doing steer wheel about a year uh, and COVID really took a hit to that. Um, but I've been really inspired because between the poise spinning and the steer wheel, um, I really fell into dance, which I know you and I have a story about. Um, but the both both solo dancing and partner dancing specifically the partner dancing and the flow art really prepared me well for sear wheel because i think it's beautifully unique as an object that is both you know sometimes it, it, and it's an and it's a circus apparatus you know it's all of these things in one which is one of the reasons i love it so much but i was really able to relate to it both as a partner and as an extension of self um and poi in the flow arts world are known for interacting more like an extension of your own body than an external partner. So I like, I really like that Sierra wheel can do both. I'm going to say, I remember if you looked at, so if anybody ever gets to look at her co-create, you will see how they really 
have a few videos mm-hmm. of the wheel action. You also even learn how to juggle. And I remember seeing that too. Yeah, so. eventually I did. I, I can do a bit with clubs. I'm better with clubs than I am with balls. Bag. Oh, or balls. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah. So speaking of so speaking of dance, mm-hmm. you have uh you also are a dancer, burlesque and also modern dance or or classical dance. Blues dancing is one of them, mm-hmm. but you also did. I remember you when you were over, when you did the show at the Armory when I first met you. Yeah. It, was a, it was like a tango, or was it like a tango or a salsa? No, it's a tango. It was a tango. Yes. And um, I forgot who your um, your partner was. Uh, that is Z Zahava Gris. Okay. Yeah. And just that was a miraculous dance. I mean. And you being the lead, I was like, I was intrigued. They well, the, there's a really specific and fun part about that dance, too, is <laughs> it was a very modern dance, though it was partner, because we incorporated rope into mm. the dance. Yes. And we were able to use the rope in a really beautiful fashion. Mm. That's the teaser I'm going to leave about that particular <laughs> performance. Um, and there's no video of that because of the nature of that sex positive event, everybody's confidentiality was kept. Yes. So you just get to hold that one in your mind, Sharon. Oh, most um, definitely on a daily <laughs> basis. <laughs> that was a really interesting performance actually, because the Hava Z, we've known each other for years and Z is very, um, they're there. I really recommend looking up their work. It's called embody more love. And they do a lot of embodiment work, movement work, sexuality work, um, healing, race work. Like they do all of the good work. And so they're embodied in a very different way than I am, you know, and uh, their stature is smaller than mine. And so I can lift them and move them. And, and they've got that uh, ecstatic dance background and contact improv background. And then I've got this belly dance and burlesque and then moving into the partner dances into the blues and the swing. And so I have this like, you know, upright, you know, dynamic lead follow thing going on. And so we just like came together and what the kids have been calling it for the past 10 years when, you know, you have two different distinct styles of dance, especially in partner world. Um, like if I dance salsa and you dance tango and we want to dance together and there's like, you know, Sam Smith playing, what do we do? Um, the kids have been calling it fusion. That's called fusion dancing. Uh, nice. And so Z and I were doing a very fusion dance, that beautiful tango song. Very nice. Very nice. And I'll let everyone know that they're a great dancer. <laughs> <laughs> even, a, even somewhat of a great teacher though <laughs> so because that was my first time in the blues dance mm-hmm. and i've actually and I actually still keep in touch with Dan, uh, a few people that we met i met there and stuff so there it's, it was a cherishable moment that i enjoyed even yeah even, and there was a the live blues band that <laughs> night no, and they had a live blues band and i was dj and also, well, yeah. And then, cause I, I had to show you a good time that night. Right. So I like wow. took you to the blues <laughs> event and there was a live blues band and a bunch of people. And, and then I like strolled up to this, this 
DJ in the, who's been in the community for like 20 years. Yeah. And I was like, this is just my friend Steven. What's up? This is my friend Sharon. You know, and then I'm just like walking over to this like highly esteemed um, like teacher in the scene. And I'm like, what's up? This is my friend Sharon. And I just love that, Sharon, you, you don't play the status games. You know, you go in and you treat everybody welcomingly, kind, you know, and you've always got so many beautiful questions. Well, I'm, I'm always interested in what's going on. <laughs> yeah, and I'm certain that your listenership knows that about you. But I wanted to give them, you know, just a little taste of the fact that, like, this is a really great human doing this. I try. <laughs> but let's get into what people have been interested in. Your poetry. What got you into poetry? One of them, I think it's pretty apparent that I'm a performer and that I love words. Uh, one of the most common compliments that I got as a child was how eloquent I was, how articulate. Right? And so I think that when the teenage feelings and existentialism hit, I took to writing. And specifically, oh, and then I was also in a queer community in Seattle as a teenager. So young queer community is full of poetry. Um, specifically at the, the period that I was, you know, really in it, there was a lot of slam happening around youth speak. Um, the way that poetry was being incorporated into the different school systems and after-school programs, um, there were there was a lot of opportunity and encouragement for especially queer and other marginalized youth to write and write poetry and find their voice. Um, so that's really where it started for me. Oh. And and then in Seattle at the time, uh, this is the like early, early, mid-aughts, uh, okay. 2000s, um, there was a writing, a queer writing institute in Seattle called Bent Writing Institute. And it was <laughs> a bunch of queer writers who started in a living room and then eventually like got tiny office spaces all over Capitol Hill, which is a, a historically known queer district in, in Seattle area. And they worked with some of the queer organizations that I was working and then by the time I was 17, I was going to Bent. And they were holding multiple different kinds of writing uh, opportunities, but they had a heavy focus on poetry. And I got to work with Tara Hardy and Elena Ellis and um, Sister Glow Your Own Way and uh, Imani Sims. Um, some of these wonderful like educators at the time who really helped me hone my my voice within my craft my voice has always been very strong in my writing in fact like you know my structure and grammar was the part where I, I needed you know to learn a lot but they all not only challenged me to you know like be daring in my writing be honest in my writing um where to cut phrases and where to add words but also I had so many visual representations and role models of powerful queer people or people who didn't feel powerful but were finding their power um and lots of queer femmes which i'm very grateful for uh because femme power is one of the things that continues to stoke my fire 
I am non-binary. I use they, them. I've been wanting to correct you during this podcast, but... I thought I've been on it. I've always room for growth. And, um, and I think that being raised by matriarchs, I had three moms, and getting the opportunity when I was young to work with uh, queer femme activists, including poets, was deeply influential on how I hold myself and my self-esteem now. Yeah. True. Yeah. Shay. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on and on about Ben's too. There was, no, there was, no, I got no. to see Mia Mingus and uh, Leah Lakshmi Prayapshna Samarasinga and um, some of these just incredible uh, D Blair. I got to see D Blair perform before he passed away. Mm. And these were all queer poets of the age and time. I got to see Kate Bornstein. Kate Bornstein gave me her phone number because of Bent Writing Institute. And so many good memories from there that are just like bubbling up now because I haven't gotten the opportunity to talk about it. But it really connected to, um, because queer, like queer critical thought and poetry or essay form is a counter narrative to a narrative that is so dominant that we don't even know how to question it or how far the reaches of um, its influence go. And so also in that way, as I've been growing into an adult, having these ideas about like look, looking to people who weren't getting married and having children as their markers of success for their life was very valuable. <gasps> okay. I'm going to take a deep breath. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be quiet. It's like, okay, you want to speak? Go ahead. And I'm just going to sit back here and just listen. And sometimes, you know, when you're on, when you're down the rabbit hole, you're like, oh, I could run away on that rabbit. No, no, no. You got you to gotta rein yourself in one tangent. Just one tangent at a time. One tangent <laughs> at a time. Um, wow. Okay. Going back to what I was talking about. So, you born and raised in Washington State. Seattle, Washington? Yeah. Okay. So, living from, because I was in Seattle, and, and I was in Seattle, living in Seattle from 96, from, from 97 to 99, or actually 2000. So, mm-hmm. uh, I know I was living in, I was living in Fort Lewis, military, and then also living off in um, Lake, Lakewood, and also um, Puyallup and Spanaway. So, right. I know they're in, I also had a group out there. Uh, a rap group uh, <laughs> uh, called Mr. Know It All and the Essence Of. And I was yes. actually rapping. So I know Bump, we, were, we played in Bumper Shoe. We played in the, um, the uh, what's the festival called? Uh, it was the festival for, um, it was the Re- Renaissance Festival. We were playing the Renaissance. So, we, yeah, I know. When, when, you're, when you're dating... When you're interracial dating, you're gonna be you're gonna be in some serious groups. <laughs> oh, oh, I know. Oh, I know. <laughs> so I'm, I'm one of my most people. Like, yeah, I, I was. Yeah, yeah, I was in. I was in a different. You were rapping at the Midsummer Renaissance Fair. Is that what you're telling yeah, me? I was rapping there too. Yes. <laughs> I was. I was rapping there too. I was just saying that I was. I was in some serious. I was. I was dating some serious people that people were like. That's that's different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. My life ain't ain't, ain't clear cut black. <laughs> um, Turns out 
everybody from around the world was also alive from 500 to 1500 AD. Right. So that's a thing. Well, that's what I'm saying. I, I saw Dee Blair before. Um, I saw I saw Dee Blair. And so rest in peace. But I I do remember just being in Seattle's an interesting place. Uh, Seattle is an interesting place, but also all the little Lord Tacoma area and mm-hmm. Puyallup and Spanaways, even Fort Lewis itself. My family, my mom had a moment of weirdness when she went to, uh, when her and my brother went to uh, um, Burger King over in Olympia, they walked in, the whole, the whole, all the customers looked at them at the door and then mm-hmm. they just backed up and walked back out. <laughs> so, so it's like, it's always odd to me how the 90s or even race and mm-hmm. everything has gone with some people, including even even with queer folks, how they deal with just this, just their sexuality, just their discrimination of all the things that have happened to them. So it's always, it's, even now, even these days, it's still this kind of, uh, you're fighting to be here mm-hmm. where people don't want you to. And I, I assume, I always assume poetry gives that voice to let people know I'm still here. Mm-hmm. And this is, this is me. This is my, this is what they call my truth. <sighs> I hate that word. <laughs> I do. Oh, you can, you can, you can vows on it, but I oh. know people are going to look at me and go, why are you, you're supposed to be with us. I I'm with y'all. I'm just saying there's some words that are used that even I have to go, come on, man. <laughs> what if, what if I was like, this is my confirmation bias. <laughs> I, you know what you say that that shows <laughs> that shows some interesting intelligence. People are like, wow, that makes me look like I'm intelligent. <laughs> Confirmation bites. Confirmation bites. <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's been a it's been a ride. Um, but how how's been your time? Has it, I always ask this to people? Has it been a culture shock since you've been from moving from Seattle or just moving from Washington State? Mm-hmm. to the Bay Area. How's that been in a culture shock to you? All right, here we go. Yes. Um, so <laughs> I grew up in Seattle, born and raised, and I've spent the first 25 years of my life there. Um, I actively started engaging and learning about social justice uh, when I was a teenager. And there was this myth that I didn't understand because I'd was born there, you know, that it's one of the whitest places in the country. It's one of the whitest places in the country. And I think that's also, you know, simplifying an issue, but I kept hearing it and I would, I would like travel, you know, um, but I wouldn't fully understand what that implication meant. And my moving to the base story is very much one of those. I got off the plane with two suitcases and $300 in my bank account and made it or made my way to where I am now. And as a part of that story, I did quite a bit of couch surfing in the Bay for a while. And I remember being in Oakland and it was in like the middle of the night and I was walking from BART back to my sublet. And I'd been there for enough time that I felt safe just, you know, getting to know your own area and knowing which streets are, you know, better to walk down at night, et cetera. 
And I remember thinking that when I had first moved here, and even before I got here, that I had so much built up in my head that I would walk around with my shoulders hunched and I was always, you know, my eyes were darting back and forth and I probably looked like I was really tense when I was walking down the street. And I was like, oh, there's an undercurrent here that is not white. And I felt it and it was different. And it took me a minute to get used to because it, it reflected back to this thing I'd always felt in Seattle that I never had a word for which was that it's not even just the demographics. It's how colonialism took root there. And some of the ways in which the culture supports that through, in Seattle, people give a little space. They give a little breathing room, you know? Everybody's a little bit calmer, quieter. I like to say, you know, the cloud, we've got the clouds. And there's thousands of shades of gray. Um, so there's a lot of different opportunity for expression within that, but it's a little bit just chiller and that can lead to timidity that can lead to silence that can lead to passivity. Um, and like, and yet I also see the Northwest uh, actively taking action towards looking into its missing and murdered indigenous women on you know, a state level. I see Washington, you know, working with the Lummi people to do their sacred ceremony of giving salmon to the Jay Orcapod that lives in the Puget Sound and stopping boat traffic for miles in each direction so that there could be that time for that communion. Sharon's, Sharon is doing the like eyebrows up. Eyebrows down, eyebrows up. Like, you're, you're, so one information that even I'm like, I didn't know any of this. <laughs> one, one tangent at a time, but yeah. So you know, Washington and Seattle, Western Western Washington. Um, there's a lot of complexity there, and so I know that what I experienced and and how grateful I am now to um, be in a place that has a very different history. And it's about learning the history and honoring the place you are. Um, I, I, one of the things that I look to and I've gotten the chance to do living here now is what does it actually mean to connect somewhere that I'm not indigenous to and that I chose to move to? How am I able to show up for that space and place, you know, choosing to be here? So um, for me, that means like I, in my work, have gotten the blessing of being outside for quite a bit of time this year uh, in the Presidio. And so I'm learning the history of the Presidio and how it was involved in the Spanish wars, the Mexican wars. You know, that, that place has been a military base for three different countries. Um, and yet there's still like, indigenous knowledge and free-flowing rivers and all of that within that space too so for me it's partially about where you come from but it's also about are you able to re-indigenize in a respectful way where you are it's definitely a lot of history it's definitely i mean the biggest history i, I know from living in um tacoma 
was uh-huh. the fact of the internment camps and how that became how that's why I, that's why I found out a lot of Asians don't live in Tacoma because of that. And I can actually see why. And it basically is kind of it's kind of leveled itself to this is the information you should know about. And it's it's something where you go, okay, this was one of the horrors of the state, but it is also one of the things that you have to remind people because some people just don't go, well, I, I don't know why they left. I'm like, yeah. just little things like that, buddy. <laughs> just little things like that. But neither here or there. No, not neither here or there. Let's get back to the subject. Now, we're going to ask the, one of the main questions I always ask everybody. So, in the, in the poetry community, we have literary poets and stage poets. Literary poets, which are basically people who write in books, um, mm-hmm. in magazines, publications and stuff. And stage poets who make CDs, performances, and other particular things like video and stuff on their poetry. But... We always call it, it's the page versus the stage. Mm. So, Co, mm. I'm going to ask you, what are you comfortable with? The page, the stage, or both? I like that you're like, it's one or the other, or both. <laughs> I would say, I'm going to say both. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm always that person. Uh, but I would say I have a preference for the stage. Okay. And because it's been my comfort space for so long, you know, I've done theater on stage. I've done like, like I've done performance. I've done speaking engagements, like to be on a stage in front of people consenting their attention to you. and then be using every cell of your body to get across your, you know, intent. And when you have a whole audience on your hook and you can make them laugh, you can bring them on a journey. You can help them think things they've never thought before. That is one of the greatest joys that I've ever known in this life. And I think that there is so much art that is, judged and valued by what it leaves behind paintings works of novel but performance arts i think are the things that sometimes can touch the soul and gain that access the most readily and they're so precious because of how ephemeral they are you can record a performance now but to see performance live in front of you changes people at least it has changed me multiple times right um so i think i will always be a performance artist in my heart um and i wrote a book and i've written a chat book i wrote a chat book for a boy i liked back in the day you still have it oh there's only like one or two copies oh you can put that digitally (laughs) (laughs) um so i and i realized that there's also something beautiful about typography and wordplay with typography and spacing and how you can create story and picture and how you can um, 
also like what I some of the best written poems that I find are the ones that I can find their written, which I know is like a common tenant of poetry, but I think that is so powerful and is used so powerfully. You also get to break so many grammatical and punctuation rules in poetry. I love it. <laughs> That's what you're aiming for. <laughs> I can see that. <laughs> there's, there's so many lines and graphs and, bar- and sometimes you just need an interrobang. You know what I mean? Interrobang. That's a word. Okay, that's a t-shirt right there. Interrobang. That's on you. You, you make the t-shirt. That's it. It's the love child between a question mark and an exclamation point. It's called an interrobang. It's like a like a first wave.com chat room sort of that's when it was created and it's barely used anymore. But actually, and you can this will be a fun teaser for those who show up to the recording. Um, on December 7th, 7th, yes, at 7 p.m., 7.15, p.m., yeah. I'm good at this, <laughs> um, I'll show you now, I actually have a tattoo of an interrobang. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. so that can be seen on December 7th at 7.15 p.m. if you would like to, okay. uh, but yeah, it's the a combo between an exclamation point and a question mark, and it's my favorite punctuation mark. I know so many people that have that now. <laughs> I should put they they have. I always have to like change the thing to question mark and an explanation point. But yeah. now you just got I, there's now a symbol for it, and I'm like, okay, okay, mm-hmm. I will go with Terabang. Yes. Wow. And Terabang away. Huh? I said in Terabang away. <laughs> <laughs> but <laughs> as we getting as we getting close to the end and stuff. I would like yeah. for you to tell people where they can find you on social media. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yes. Um, my name is again, co-creation that's K O E creation. And you can find me online at www.cocreation.com at co-create that's K O E C R E A T E on social media. And if you want to drop me a line, you can email me at co-creation at gmail.com. Remember that, folks, co-creation. Get to it. And also pr- um, promote the book. Plug. Absolutely, absolutely. You can find This Heart Holds Many anywhere books are sold. I highly recommend IndieBound, who will also do delivery to you during pandemic times. Um, but you can find ebook versions and uh, softcover versions. Uh, bookstores, anywhere books are sold. This Heart Holds Many. Get it, people. That is Christmas coming. Ho, ho, ho. Yes, it is. <laughs> Get to know something new that you never thought about before. Non-binary. Polyamorous. Send it to that person in your life you've had a hard time coming out to about whatever it is. Just send them my book and let me do it instead. Never thought that. You're right. But then, mm-hmm. wow, that's going to be a conversation. That's, that's, yeah, that's you a, said, if you said it early, then you can even have the conversation oh, on the holiday. Snap, that is a conversation right there. That's, that's, that's beyond birds and bees conversation. Huh. Hey, mom. Hey, dad. Hey. Oh, wow. I might have to have that conversation. Yeah, go figure. One tangent at a time for me. <laughs> hey, it's a terabang. <laughs> <laughs> We're just sitting here and terabanging away. That's all. Mm-hmm. But no thank you for talking to me talking to this group 
we've been vibing for a long time and stuff. I know still, you know, I know COVID. How has COVID been to you? I mean, let's, let's just get to the point. How's COVID for you? How's, how you been in COVID? Oh yeah, I know. It's been a while since I've actually seen your face. Um, <laughs> yes, it has. Yeah, it has. Got a little uh, grayer. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I just, it's distinguished, right? I, I try that. <laughs> yeah. Um, honestly, I just had my anniversary with my partner. And he and I were sitting there. Thank you. And he was like, you know, it's about framing. And there's been a lot of hardship this year. There's been a lot of chaos. But we both also had some of the opportunity to slow down, you know, look at our stuff, at our stuff in our other relationships, and get clearer on what we want. Um, and, and we're both um, creators. And so it's also been an opportunity to get some of this longer term work done. I've been working on a children's book and my first, uh, my first try at a course, which is actually on what I'm calling risk management languages, okay. which is a little bit like uh, for, for any of your relationship nerds in the audience, this is like COVID love languages or <laughs> basically like which tactics of risk management during the pandemic are you leaning toward? Are you leaning towards testing or contact tracing or self-isolation? Um, why people might be leaning that way? And then a little bit of context so that we can learn each other's styles and maybe approach each other with more compassion and less judgment. So that's, that's how I've been, <laughs> Right? Um, and it's coming up a lot in non-monogamous relationships. And I've been getting um, praise from my monogamous housemates about the fact that they're really appreciative that I have familiarity and skill around having these hard conversations. Because let's face it, everything feels like an STI conversation. Everything feels, anytime you want to like think about getting together with somebody, you got to check in with everybody on your list and be like, yo, can I breathe near this person? And people aren't used to that. It feels intrusive or scary. Um, and I've found that I do have a lot of practice at these hard conversations hmm. and so share being able to share that with people has been a, a, a big like it's lit a fire underneath me so it feels really strange to be like i hope that i get this done before the pandemic ends but i'm definitely working on a video series right now in that regard and the chance to work on a course and maybe build a bigger one for myself in the future that i can offer to people is is cool so like in the framing of how, what did this year give you? What does this time give you? And for me, it gave me that chance for a pivot, the chance to focus a bit on my health, my home, my relationships and slow down, which I'd always been so afraid to do in our society. I was so afraid that if I'd slowed down, you know, I would miss whatever opportunities came by. And I think that's actually, you know, one thing that, I really hope, especially our young people, can come out of this time with is that being slow is not necessarily bad. It doesn't mean that you're failing. You're going to fail. It's a necessary part of the growth process. Necessary part, people. Necessary parts. <laughs> At least that's how I've been keeping my mental health in check <laughs> the past eight months. Mental health is a. Is a uh, if nobody's learned about mental health now, they're learning it today or learned it this year. Definitely. Definitely, mental health is. 
I'm hoping that this will now pro- per- propel people to actually look into, we need this. But people still have their bias standards and they're still waiting for the world to go normal again. So I don't know what to expect. I just go, hey, as long as, as long as they got the nuclear bombs, hey, I'll just be drinking martinis. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> got the button. They got the button. All right. But I know it's, you know it's getting a little late. I know you're, you just got home and stuff. So I want to say thank you for doing this. Can't wait to see you. December 7th, people, socially yeah. distanced versus you will see Co with Phoenix Ooh. Divine Ooh. coming out at you with poetic justifying truth. I don't know why I just did all that. <laughs> well, and you even used the word truth in there. The colloquial. You no, know, oh, I love it. You're going to keep colloquial. it in. Yes. <laughs> the bias has to keep colloquial. It's really, really, really really good sean thank you so much always i really appreciate it i'm so excited to see everyone and get back into poetry and i think i might do a piece about phoenixes in honor okay i'm gonna be in i'm gonna be intrigued but but everyone check that out i am sharon that's co-creation yeah this is iambic poetry podcast we'll see you at the next we'll see the next episode peace peace